0: Hi, survivalists. Welcome to The Crux, a true survival podcast. I'm your host, Tessa King. And your other host, Casey McIntosh. In 1996, eight people passed away attempting to climb Mount Everest. It was the most deaths in a single day in the history of the mountain. Today, we'll be covering the story of Beck Weathers, a pathologist from Texas who was left for dead during this historic storm. Okay, so we're diving right into it. First off, we were curious about what the weather is like on Mount Everest. Um, What would you think the average temperature is on the mountain without knowing previously, Casey? Mm.
1: Like in the warmest months or the coldest months? Just like on average is fine. Maybe like minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit.
0: Okay, well... That's pretty close. It says the average is negative 33 degrees Fahrenheit, Mm. which in my head, I would assume that it's colder. (laughs) Just, I think about it and I'm like, definitely negative 40 or more.
1: Honestly, I have to say that I'm sort of proud of myself at that guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you knew ahead of time. (laughs) No, I seriously didn't. (laughs) But, but I have a question for you though. So, um, you know, in terms of season for climbing, I'm assuming they're climbing in the summer. Oh, summer months.
0: there's like a one month window to climb Everest, which is what, what month? Well, I'll look it up
1: because
0: <laughs> I don't know off the top of my head, but I know that it's a really short window, which is part of the problem in climbing it is they try to pack so many people into these trips and then it becomes dangerous because everyone's in a line and if you run out of oxygen, you might not be able to get back down the mountain because there are too many people in your way. To answer your question, it says from April to May and maybe into mid-June is when you can climb Everest. Okay. So it's actually longer than I thought it would be, but still, like, that's barely a season. I just wanted to go into some of the information about Mount Everest in general. The big thing is the cost, and I didn't realize how much it was to really climb Mount Everest. I read that book by John Krakauer where... Most people paid about $65,000 to climb Everest in 1996, which seems like a lot to me for the 90s.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that probably would buy a house in a lot of areas in the United States at that point, you know, or at least half of a house.
0: Well, that's how it is now. So tell me how much you think it is to climb a mountain now. Oh, gosh. Like, I'm going to guess
1: double that. Double what you said before.
0: Well, it's very interesting because you could pay as low as 45000 to climb a mountain. So looking like a hell of a deal, isn't it? Mm. Is that but, with a coupon or what? Yeah, Oh, yeah. Groupon for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up for that one. Sherpa.net. So the high end is up to $160,000, which I think if you want a better chance of somebody in the mountain that you're going to pay that high end. How do you get the low price? Oh, it probably has to do with what kind of money you're putting into everything because there are so many different factors. You're paying for your gear. You're paying for your travel, which it's going to be significantly more the farther away you're traveling.
1: True, but not like not like $75,000 more, though. No, but, you know,
0: several thousand for sure. And then you're paying to have your stuff poured it around, you're paying for your Sherpa, which usually you have your individual person. So I wrote it down somewhere how much it is for a Sherpa, just in <laughs> case you wanted to hire someone to carry your stuff around. It looks like it's about $5,000 to hire just the Sherpa, but then you're paying for each oxygen take. So and, and a minimum of five oxygen tanks it seems is like I said it's it's the low end and then you're also tipping them so just have your sherpa you're paying a lot of money and then you have to pay people to feed you you have to pay for all your gear which can end up being really really expensive just because most people don't have gear for such cold temperatures
1: Yeah, I was kind of wondering if they have to plan their own meals or if that's something that's done for them. Do you know?
0: No, they they do meals. The Sherpas do? Um, I think they have cooks. Okay. So And then you also have to have the permit like we were talking about and also insurance per person, which goes from $11,000 to $29,000. So that's a huge chunk right there. So if you're going on the low end, your permit and insurance is over half of what you're paying to climb the mountain. And then I saw another site that said just your gear could be up to $30,000.
1: So the insurance itself, is that for, like, rescue attempts or something like that? Like, if something went awry and you were still alive enough to travel out of there, um, the helicopter ride out, is that that what you understand the insurance is for? Yeah, maybe it has to do with liability. I mean, this was just
0: breaking down costs this yeah, website I'm sorry, sorry i'm going
1: down a, into a rabbit hole but i was just curious because obviously they're not shipping your body off the mountain if you die on it
0: yeah for sure and that's a problem on everest anyway is that it's very littered littered with oxygen tanks littered with bodies they can't bring stuff down safely so it just ends up cluttering up the mountain which is kind of crazy it's kind of sad really It it is sad and then just think about how many years things have to accumulate on the mountain yeah um, I'm just seeing if there's anything else cost-wise. Oh, well, just to break down the gear that you're buying, it in- includes your mask and regulator for your oxygen tank. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, a minimum of five bottles of supplemental oxygen. And some people do climb Everest without. I wouldn't recommend They're it. They're crazy. They're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... To level with you. I think people who are doing this in general are a little crazy. So it's crazy squared. Yeah. (laughs) Just to take it a level above. Yes. And this site said that 97% of climbers do use supplemental oxygen. So like 3%
1: extra crazy people. It's a pretty small percentage, really. But they exist. They're there. You know, maybe they're just cheapskates and they don't want to pay for the bottles of oxygen. Yeah. That's where they (laughs) cut their costs. (laughs) I don't think so. I'm not paying for this bottle of oxygen. Yeah. Not today.
0: You know, I'll pay over $45,000, but I I cut it (laughs) at oxygen. Ridiculous. It's free. I breathe it into my lungs. (laughs) Who needs that? Well, anyway, so back to the story. Okay. So the Sherpas on the mountain, they usually are doing the bulk of the work. I thought it was interesting because people typically think of Nepal citizens as Sherpas, but really Nepal has 2 million residents and about 20,000 of those are Sherpas.
1: Yeah, not very
0: many. It's a really highly respected job. You know, I think I saw somewhere that the average salary in Nepal is like $160 a year. And so these are the money makers
1: and they deserve it because they're doing all the work. Do they go on more than one mission every year, if you want to call it that? Um, you know, they probably don't do a lot of trips per year. I would just hazard a guess.
0: Because it takes about six weeks to summit Everest. Yeah. So with such a short season, maybe twice. But I mean, if you think about how many clients are climbing, you probably can make a fair amount of
1: money. Yeah, that's a pretty sweet gig for five or six weeks of work and then probably good for the rest of the year.
0: Yeah, and I mean, if you're considering the average salary to be $160 US per year, If they're getting paid $5,000 for one trip plus a tip, that's significantly higher than the average citizen. And so they carry most of the gear just besides the day packs that people have. So Sherpas and Yaks take care of that. And something, so the specific trip was guided by a man named Rob Hall, who is from New Zealand, And he really made it clear that without the support of the Sherpas, no one has a chance of climbing the mountain. So he really stressed their role in getting to the top. More than 300 people have died attempting to reach the summit. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but then when you consider you can only hike like two months out of the entire year. So this is like up to date, current current Yeah, currently... More than 300 people have died. When do you think the last year without a death was? I mean, are there any years without a death? Well, the last year without a death was 1977. Wow. Every year since then someone's died. Yep. And in 77, only two people reached the summit. So So that's why no one died. Yeah, so few people were actually up there. Crazy. Over 30 years, people died every year after 77. And I think it's interesting because in the last 30 years, the summit success rate has doubled. And there are many reasons. Uh, a few of those include better weather forecasting. You know, they just had to guess what the best time to summit was in the old days, but now they can really tell what the weather's going to be like. They have better supplemental oxygen and they have fixed lines. So instead of messing around with their own lines, they have places on the mountain that they can clip into. I want to get into the man of the hour, Peck Weathers. He was a pathologist from Texas, as we touched base on before. He had two children and he worked at a successful medical practice in Dallas. He didn't start climbing until he was almost 40, so a little unusual. But he had taken a trip to Colorado and took a mountaineering course, and it was over for him. He really loved it. By the time he was about to climb Mount Everest, he was 49 years old. John Krakauer described him as a chronic overachiever. So Beck Weathers had it in mind that he wanted to do the Seven Summits quest, With Everest being number seven. So it probably goes without saying, but the seven summits are the highest peaks in every continent. So Everest is the tallest, so it follows that he would want to do that last as the biggest achievement. So I think part of the reason he was like this is because he was depressed. Which kind of makes sense to me is that he defined his life by achieving things, by doing the next big thing, making goals and seeing them through, Mm -hmm. which that's got to be hard if Everest is the last on your list. Like, what do you do after that anyway?
1: I don't know. That's a very good question. You pick up a new hobby. Yeah. I mean, but... (laughs) You get really good at playing the ukulele, Tessa. That's what you do. <laughs> Maybe you would go
0: into like deep sea travel. I don't, <laughs> like, I don't know. Was, like 90% of the ocean undiscovered. That's next. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> exactly. Everybody who did this climb in the group of Beckweathers, they pretty much came from sea level. There were 26 people that were involved in the climb that Beckweathers was a part of. Which is significant because the clients, there were, I believe, eight of them. And then, of course, they had a guide and then an assistant guide. And, but anyway, it's kind of crazy that it takes that much support to get such a small group up the mountain. And only personal gear is what's carried by the climbers. So, once again, the Sherpas are really doing the bulk of the work. They really only have to carry a day pack. If, if I was going to do Everest, I would only have to carry a pack with, you know, like my jacket and your my underwear. camera. <laughs> yeah, for when I grab <laughs> my pants. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you need a backup.
1: Yeah, your underwear. <laughs> well, you said it was personal. So. Yeah, well. I mean, What's more personal than that? You know what? It is kind <laughs> of a socks. weird way. Dry socks, snacks. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I digress.
0: Yes, snacks. Well, John Krakauer said that he had mostly candy bars when they're walking from the airplane to base camp. So, Snickers. Yeah. Oh, you got to Product placement. Sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> so they have to climatize. So basically they start at base camp, but they don't just go from base camp to the top of the mountain. Otherwise, it wouldn't take a month and a half. Let's be real. They have to go from base camp to camp one, back to base camp, back to camp one, back to base camp, to camp one, to camp two. And there are four camps before the summit. So it's a lot of hard work. You got to get used to the elevation. You have to get used to the conditions. And the altitude is so dangerous because it actually causes edema either in the lungs or in the brain.
1: Choose mm. your poison.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess we talked about this before, but would you rather have your lungs full of fluid or your brain leak fluid? I'm still I'm still saying my brain. Oh, yeah. I know that seems crazy, but... I don't think it does because, you know, if my brain's leaking, I don't know if I'm going to be aware of it. That's the thing. But yeah, in mean, my short,
1: lungs... <laughs> shortness of breath is a horrible feeling.
0: Yeah, horrible. and to feel like maybe you're drowning from the inside.
1: Yeah, terrible.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like if my at the point where my brain is leaking fluid, I'm a little loopy, so I don't know if I'll care as much.
1: Well, and some people might have both, you know, to consider that. It might not be one or the other.
0: The edema in your lungs is more common. I think if you really get going, then you have to worry about brain leakage. Mm-hmm. But this is really from just climbing the mountain too fast, so... You really, really have to take your time. And anyway, so after this series of climbing, after a long time, many weeks, then they were actually able to make the push for the summit. The guide who I previously mentioned, his name is Rob Hall from New Zealand. And he was a very trusted guide because he had already summited Mount Everest five times. So people went with him because they trusted him. He knew what he was doing. And I'm going to spoil it for everyone. Rob Hall will die on this climb, which was really a tragedy in itself because he had a pregnant wife back home. And anyway, so I guess it goes to show that even the most experienced climber still has high risk. And it was a rough year for Rob because as they're coming to the top, five out of eight clients decided that they were not going to summit. They turned back early. So he was feeling a little bit disappointed about that because he has such a high success rate. And for not everyone to make it up is kind of a big deal for him.
1: So what what made these people want to turn
0: around? I think... It depends on the person, for sure. And it also has to do with the time constraints. And remember, it's not just Rob Hall's group. There were several other groups on the mountain. And so it's kind of like we talked about before. People kind of get lined up. And it's very important to have your times established. Rob had really told his group that they needed a specific turnaround time. He had said that, With enough determination, any idiot can make it up the mountain. The trick is to get back out alive, which really resonates with me because I feel like I'm a determined climber. When I've hiked myself, I feel like I want to go. If if I have the ability to do it, I want to do it. But the fact is, if you do it like that, you have a very real chance that you're going to die on the mountain. Okay, I'm going to
1: remind you of that in a few minutes.
0: (laughs) Well, truly, because the weather's so unpredictable. You have such a short window. If you don't turn around, you know, you may make it to the mountain, but you might not make it back down to your family. And I believe that they said the turnaround time, they wanted it to be at like 1.30. In any case, um, our main man, Beck Weathers, prior to doing this trip... He had a surgery to correct his myopia, so you're trying to shine. Tell us what that is.
1: I don't know if we're going to shine here. So <laughs> I don't work for an eye doctor, but um, nearsightedness. That is correct. Gold so he star. had like laser eye surgery?
0: I don't know. I mean, because this was 96. Do they do laser eye surgery then? Uh, don't ask me that question. I don't know. Basically, the surgery has to do with... Correcting the lens. So it said that it involves flattening the cornea. Mm -hmm. But an unknown side effect of the surgery was that with the low barometric pressure at the high altitude, it caused his eyesight to fail. And he had told people about this procedure he had during this climb, but he failed to mention that his eyesight was getting worse during the climb which we'll find out was pretty detrimental. At the point where they're about to summit, his vision had gone so bad that he couldn't see more than a few feet. And once again, instead of telling someone, he started to follow others. So he would watch people and where they would put their boots, he would put his foot in the boot print ahead of him. So he literally could only see a few feet ahead and was so determined that he just kept on trucking. He didn't tell anyone about this until the summit became in reach because this strategy was working out really well for him until the day of the summit where the sun came up and he he really just had gone blind between the light And the way the ice is as you're climbing so close to the summit, it said that he had unintentionally lacerated his corneas because he rubbed his eyes.
1: Oh, my goodness. And there are ice
0: crystals up there. So he said that at that point, one eye was completely blurred over. I could barely see out of the other, and I've lost all depth perception.
1: And at this point, he's still considering summiting the mountain. Oh, yeah, he is. That's... That's interesting.
0: Yeah, so this is when he chooses to tell Rob Hall, which was wise. He said that he still wanted to summit the mountain. He was pretty sure that his vision would improve enough as the light changed in the day. Um, But Rob Hall said, you know, if your vision isn't better in half an hour, you need to turn around. He's like, either turn around right now or wait and see what happens, and you can try to summit. But if it doesn't improve, if you decide to wait and it doesn't improve, you need to wait right here for me, and I will help you down the mountain. But in the meantime, I'm gonna go summit it. So, and you know, keep in mind, there are all these Sherpas, and Rob Hall has to make sure the rest of the group, if they're gonna summit, that he's around for it. So, Rob goes up the mountain and unfortunately there was a storm conditions got really bad as he waited for Rob Hall to come back
1: so he decided hey i'm going to not go well vision didn't improve and he
0: just decided well he was going to wait that half hour cuz he really was determined he's like oh, I, I think see. i think my vision will get better because if he had really listened to Rob Hall he would have just turned around yeah That was really the better option. But, you know, he put all that time and money into it. Mm -hmm. That he really still was... I mean, I don't think that he would have gone so long without telling someone about it. If he wasn't incredibly determined. If the stakes weren't so high. Yeah, exactly. So, a storm is rolling in as Beck is waiting for Rob to come back. And so, our journalist, John Krakauer... He summits the mountain and starts heading back down and runs into Beck waiting for Rob Hall. So John Krakauer he says that he thinks it's going to be two or three hours for Rob Hall to make it back from the summit, and it was already starting to get dark. So.
1: Was he, did he have his tent with him or is that further No, down? that's,
0: that's at the camp. Okay. Because remember, they're only carrying about 30 pounds of so like are, their personal gear and what their oxygen and their face mask and whatnot.
1: So the laceration of the eyes that happened like after they had already started going, yeah. that's when he rubbed his eyes. Yeah. Okay, I Which I can
0: see how easy that could happen if you're having eye troubles and you probably wouldn't even think twice about mm-hmm. rubbing your eyes. Yeah. Even if you know better, you you know mm-hmm. if you have allergies and your eyes are itchy, you know not to rub your eyes, but but you do it anyway. <laughs> You're gonna it feels do so it. Good. <laughs> not if you <laughs> lacerate your corneas. <laughs> it has her to guess that feels not so great. And so anyway, Beck did not take John's help. Really, John Krakauer wrote that he made the mistake of saying that a couple climbers were behind him. And one of them, my groom, had a rope. And so Beck Weathers thought that this would help him better get to camp, which, you know, it makes sense. He's going blind. And so he's like, well, if I'm roped to Mike, it'll help me get back to camp. So that was a mistake that John Krakauer said that he made, is just mentioning it all that someone was coming close behind him. And so it got darker and darker, and a blizzard began. The snow, which before had shown the evidence of the other climbers' footprints, became smooth, so it made it very difficult to determine the correct route. And then thunder began, and the climbers had to worry about avalanche danger. So Rob Hall reached the summit around 2:10, so that actually was an hour after the pre-arranged turnaround time so i had said 1:30. it must have been about one o'clock that they wanted to turn around so he's already breaking his own rule which i don't mean to be judgmental of people who are up here because we talked about this with the oxygen you're not thinking straight your brain might literally be leaking <laughs>
1: Well, also for him, it's his job to bring people to the summit. And mm-hmm. if you're that close, it might be really hard to turn around.
0: Although that's what he's telling people to do.
1: Oh, I know. But, you know, oh, it's just like five right more minutes. Right there. Yeah, five you more can minutes. see it.
0: And especially with five people turning around, the majority of your group, you're really going to feel like a failure if you, the guide, the guide who's made it five times up Everest, if you don't make it. I just think that it adds a whole other layer.
1: There's just another level of pressure.
0: Oh, for sure.
1: So he turned around an hour later than he an hour later than he should have. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, and so these other climbers in his group had gone ahead of him, like back to towards Camp Four. So Beck was waiting for two climbers that John Krakar had mentioned. They were Mike they were, um, Groom and Yasuko Namba. And eventually they reached the spot where Beck was. And at first they didn't notice him. So Mike Groom said he was sort of camouflaged with snow. He didn't realize that he was there until Beck had said something to him. Wow. So he just kind of got covered in snow waiting for someone to come along. And so, Mike Groom was able to help rope back down the mountain, but he said that Beck was so hopelessly blind that every ten meters he would take a step into thin air, and I would have to catch him with a rope. I was worried that he was going to pull me off so many times, so helping back down the mountain put Mike in danger as well, so You know, you already are low on oxygen, and you're not thinking straight, but you also have to help someone else make it safely to camp. And it's a blizzard. And, by the way, the other climber, Yasuko Namba, ran out of oxygen on their way to Camp 4. But she can't think straight, and she refuses to take off her mask, which is a big deal because if you're wearing an oxygen mask where oxygen is not flowing it actually acts as something that is suffocating you so it's even worse than not wearing a mask at all and at this point she sits down and does not want to continue and it's also completely dark so in the next two hours they're trying to stumble blindly to find the camp and they're desperately trying to keep warm so basically Beckweather said that we try to keep warm by pummeling each other so they're beating each other up to stay warm to keep blood flow and so they have their little group of three and then they're joined by others so and this is not just including their group because, remember, there are many groups climbing. So some from the other groups met up in the dark. But all of these people, they're getting to the point where they're too feeble to walk and they were going to need help if they're going to make it back down to camp. They desperately needed someone from the camp to find them because they were so weak. They didn't know where they were. The weather is terrible, so it's very hard to pinpoint their surroundings to find their way to camp. And then also keep in mind how dangerous it is if you get off track, you could fall to your death. So, you really, it is essential to know where you are on the mountain. And so, at camp four, a few people had made it, and they knew that people were missing. John Krakauer had mentioned that his tent mate, Stuart Hutchinson, came in when he realized that not everyone was there and asked if he would go outside and bang on pots and pans and shine lights into the sky to help guide the lost climbers in. He said that Stuart left the tent six times in the night to look for the missing climbers, but the blizzard was so fierce that he never dared to venture more than a few yards beyond camp. Stewart says, the winds were ballistically strong. The blowing spindrift felt like a sandblaster or something. I could only go out for 15 minutes at a time before I became too cold and had to return to the tent. The wind was whipping up a furious ground-level blizzard. But above, the sky cleared a bit, revealing the silhouettes of the face of the mountain. So one of the men in the group that was lost was able to kind of pinpoint where they were just by watching the sky. And so he was able to figure out, based on the clear sky, where camp would be. So this man was able to get to Camp 4 and inform the people at camp where these people were. And I actually noted it. There were five people This man, I can't pronounce his name. His last name is Shonin. So Shonin let everyone know where to find these other five clients.
1: So he basically walked down by himself.
0: Yeah, he figured out where he was based on that brief clear moment. And then he collapsed into his tent because he was so exhausted. So the next person to make it back to camp was Mike Groom. And he told everyone that they needed Sherpas to find Beck and Yasuko. And I think that he said it like that just because they were in the worst shape. Beck being blind and Yasuko running out of oxygen, of course. And so they went out to find them. And anyway, so they went out to find Beck and Yasuko. And when they found them... This group was lying on the ice without movement. And so the group, those five, they couldn't talk. Uh, they were pretty much helpless, and Yasuko and Namba appeared to be dead. So when they got there, they sat Yasuko down on Beck's lap, but Beck was pretty unresponsive, and Yasuko wasn't moving at all. And here's a quote from someone who said, a little later, I saw that she lay laid down flat on her back with snow blowing into her hood. Somehow she'd lost a glove. Her right hand was bare and her fingers were curled up so tightly you couldn't straighten them. It looked like they were pretty much frozen to the bone. I assumed that she was dead, but then a while later she moved and it freaked me out. She sort of arched her neck slightly as if she was trying to sit up and her right arm came up. Then that was it. Yasuko lay back down and never moved again. So as they came across this group, it was determined that they could only bring one climber back at a time. And in the meantime, the remaining climbers are just trying to keep warm together. And during this waiting period, Beck, who is disoriented, says, hey, I think I've got all this figured out. And he kind of gets up Crouches on a rock and then he stands up, but the wind catches him and blows him away backward into the night. So
1: they're like, There he goes. Yeah, there He's he gone. goes. Yeah. Crazy.
0: So everyone, one by one, is brought back to camp. And so once again, the people who are left are Yasuko Namba. And Beck Weathers. The next day, Sherpas go out to find Beck and Yasuko.
1: The next day. So they've been out there all night long.
0: Yes. So they reported that both bodies were partially buried. Their backpacks were maybe 100 feet away, uphill from them. Their faces and torsos were covered with snow. Only their hands and feet were sticking out. The first body that they came across was Yasuka, but they couldn't tell who it was until he knelt down and chipped a three inch thick piece of ice from her face.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Yes, and that is not the craziest bit. He discovered that she was still breathing at that point. What? Yeah, crazy. Both of her gloves were gone and her bare hands had appeared to be frozen solid.
1: Okay, that's terrible.
0: Yes, her eyes were dilated the skin on her face was the color of white porcelain. I said, it was terrible. I was overwhelmed. She was very clearly near death. I didn't know what to do. And so then attention was turned over to Beck, who lay 20 feet away. Beck's head was also caked with ice. There were balls of ice the size of grapes that were matted into his hair and eyelids. Mm. Yuck. So after clearing ice from his face, uh, it was discovered that he was still alive and mumbling something, but they couldn't tell what he was trying to say. He was also missing his right glove, and it was apparent that he had terrible frostbite. They couldn't get him to sit up. They said he was close to death as a person could be and still be breathing. So it was urged that they leave them where they lay. Because even if they survived long enough to be dragged, they would certainly die before they made it all the way back. So they're saying attempting a rescue would jeopardize the lives of everybody else in the group. Wow. Which has got to be pretty horrible because of your human compassion and knowing that someone is still alive and seeing that and not being able to do anything about it.
1: Well, and then what do you do when you get back? You tell their family? Like, they were still alive, but we had to leave them?
0: Yeah. And and basically, from another source, I saw that basically when you're in a hypothermic coma, even if you're breathing, you're dead. Hmm. So they say at that point, there's no way you're going to make it. But as we'll find out, things happened. So as things progress, and I think this was the next day. Once again, the times weren't very clear in this book, but somebody was outside and said, Hey, check this out. Somebody's coming into camp. The person's bare right hand was naked to the freezing wind and was terribly frostbitten. It was outstretched in kind of a salute, and it reminded them of like a mummy in a low budget film. And they realized it was Beck Weathers.
1: That is crazy. Yeah, so... That just gave me the chills.
0: Yeah, it's... I can't believe that happened. But just wait, there's more. So the previous night, he had found himself growing colder and colder, and he knew that he had lost his glove. He knew that his face was freezing, uh, and he went numb. And then he said it was really hard to stay focused, and he just kind of slid off. And through the rest of the night... He lay out on the ice, exposed, um, barely alive. He had no recollection of people coming to check on him. Uh, He doesn't remember having the ice chipped off his face. And he remained comatose for 15 hours.
1: (laughs) The thing that I would wonder is how did he see his way back to the camp?
0: Well, and I don't think that he was totally blind But I guess they never said anything about that. But I think maybe part of it was, as he had stated before, that he thought his vision would be a little bit better based on the light, so based on the UV. And so if the sun moved to the correct position, that he would be able to see a little bit better. Okay. Uh, So anyway, as he's lying in the cold, he kind of came to himself he said that initially he thought he was in a dream. He said, "When I first came through, I thought I was laying in bed. I didn't feel cold or uncomfortable. I sort of rolled onto my side, got my eyes open, and there was my right hand staring at me in the face. I saw how badly frozen it was, and that's what helped me bring myself around to reality. I woken up up. I had woken up." Enough to realize that I was in deep shit, and the cavalry wasn't coming, so I better do something about it myself. I guess this answers your question from earlier, because I did write a note about it and just forgot. So, although Beck was blind in his right eye, and able to focus his left eye on only a radius of three or four feet, he started walking directly into the wind, deducing correctly that camp lay that direction.
1: So So it's a good thing he's smart.
0: Yes, um, just good intuition, I guess. So at the point he was back at camp, nobody thought that he was going to survive the night. They said that they could barely detect his carotid pulse, which is the last pulse you lose before you die. So they said he was critically ill, and even if he did live until morning, I couldn't imagine how we are going to get him down. So the next day, John Krakauer goes in to take one last visit to Beck, who he thought had died in the night. Hmm. Yeah, because remember, everybody's like, well, he's dead. He's basically dead. We can only ease his pain until he goes. Well, so John Krakauer locates his tent, which unfortunately had been blasted flat by the hurricane, and saw that both doors were wide open. And when he looked inside the tent, he was shocked to discover that Beck was still alive, lying on his back across the floor, shivering convulsively. And at this point, his face was hideously swollen with deep ink black frostbite.
1: So, hold, hold up. So basically, he got to his tent. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming someone helped him into the tent.
0: Oh, yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, because so, he had gotten to camp. And so they. So,
1: how did this tent get totally. It was,
0: oh, it was just the elements. Yeah, sure. And this was happening to the other people at camp. But with Beck, he was so taken out just by spending all that time in the elements. So basically what it said is that the storm had blown the door open and also the sleeping bags from his body so he had left him exposed to the sub zero wind and since he had frozen hands
1: he couldn't do anything with the tent exactly he so this was like this was two storm nights in a row yeah
0: okay uh-huh well yeah the the weather was just terrible so he had frozen hands he couldn't zip up the tent he couldn't pull up his sleeping bags he was just kind of screwed and so the fact that he was still alive once again amazing so, so they wouldn't even know, like, they just assume, oh, he died. And then they have all this guilt of letting him down yet again. Wow. Uh, and so John Krakauer said that Beck wailed when he saw me. Uh, he was in agony and desperation. Oh, that's terrible. And he said, what's a guy got to do around here to get some help? And he had been screaming for help for two or three hours, but the storm had smothered his cries. So they just didn't know.
1: It almost seems like this lack of compassion that you have to, you basically have to separate yourself from your compassion Mm -hmm. because they're basically saying, well, if, if somebody else isn't going to make it, you just have to let it go. Mm -hmm. And that kind of mindset probably screwed him over, Mm -hmm. you know, because if there, if there was a little bit less of that, they might have been more inclined to check on him a little bit more closely, mm-hmm. or maybe someone would have shared a tent with him for the night to keep an... You would think that someone had, would have done that at the very least.
0: Well, and this this whole situation was just so wild that they thought they knew.
1: No, they but, thought they knew he was going to die. Yeah. They're basically like, oh, we're writing you off. You can mm-hmm. be in your tent by yourself while you die overnight. Yeah. We're just going to let you... I mean, I'm sure it's yeah. not, it wasn't like oh, that. N- I'm just saying that, you know, <laughs> of course I wasn't there, but... It just seems kind of crazy to be like, all right, well, you're in your tent. Well, and the people who
0: do this all the time, I'm sure it's one of those things where we've seen this so many times before. Yeah. That this is just the way it is. is And so it was such a shock that he just kept pulling through.
1: It's crazy.
0: So uh, he was saying himself, Beck, that the wind was pressing into the tent wall so hard against his face that he couldn't breathe. Um, And the wind would let up for a minute and then come slamming right back down onto his face. Um, And so he also had a wristwatch on, and so his arm got bigger and bigger, and the watch got tighter and tighter. That's terrible. So it was also cutting off the blood supply to his hand. Which already
1: had frostbite. Yes. It was already compromised. Yeah,
0: his hands were already so messed up. And he was saying they were... They were so incapable, he couldn't even get the watch off. And he was just so happy to see John Krakauer come into his tent. And so, anyway, the people at camp had said when he came in, this man had no face. It was completely black, solid black, like he had a crust over him. Wow. Yeah, so they got him down to a lower camp, and... It took hours to defrost his limbs, and they said it was the worst case of frostbite they had ever seen. They had given back some dexamethasone, which Mm -hmm. is a steroid, and that really helped him to get down to a lower camp, Um, and that's where they were able to airlift him out. So, And apparently, when he's being airlifted, he joked with his rescuers saying, they told me that this trip would cost me an arm and a leg.
1: <laughs> Clever dad joke right there. Yeah, I know, that timing.
0: <laughs> so within hours, they took him to Kathmandu in a helicopter. And at the time, it was the highest air rescue ever completed. Wow. And so, And I want to come back and touch base um, that in total, that trip, eight climbers died on the mountain. Wow. So, and that's including the guides, including Rob Hall, which is why he never came back to help back down the mountain. And that partially has to do with their turnaround point too. And part of it is when you do Everest so many times, like Rob Hall had done it five times and this was his sixth time you summiting. You you're going to make it. Yeah, and that's why everybody trusted him, too, because he had such a high success rate. Mm -hmm. He'd done it so many times. And who would have known that just one hour, you know, somebody an hour later would make such a difference? It's the crux. Yeah, it's the crux, exactly. It's one of those things, like, today with the better ways to know the weather forecasting, it make all the difference because then they would maybe know that such a big storm was going to roll through. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's truly sad that, and you know, other guides died too. Their secondary guide, whose name was Andy. Can't remember his last name. Sorry, Andy.
1: So um, is that the person that, that Beck was waiting for? He was waiting for his guide? Yeah, Rob. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, but, but like I said, John Krakauer was like, it's going to be a few hours before he's here, so come with me. So he had several opportunities. I mean, like, that's the whole thing, the crux, the decision. Like, if he had gone down with John Krakauer, he might not have had the roping equipment, but it still would have been light out and maybe easier to help him down than waiting until it was dark and having the rope equipment.
1: Yeah, I think part of it, and it's just that, first of all, it's cold. Mm -hmm. Second of all, you're at high altitude and your decision making is probably just really not what it needs to be. That's
0: exactly the thing. You just don't think straight. It's easy to be, you know, just living your life and thinking, oh, of course, if you had done it this way, things would have been much better. But when you're not in the situation, it's easy to say when you have enough oxygen and your lungs aren't filling with fluid and your brain's not leaking. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) but That's a very good point. All (laughs) good points. Thank you. So, I mean, it's not it's not very black and white. So, anyway, so Beck Weathers goes back to Texas. And he's greeted by his wife who wants a divorce what? due to his lifestyle choices. And she actually thought that he had died initially. Because, like, news of this had gotten out by satellite phone. For instance, uh, Yasuko Namba, they knew by the time the rest of the crew had gotten to base camp, people already knew that she was dead. Her husband knew that she was dead. So there's actually a fair amount of communication that can happen.
1: So you can, you could be actually still alive, but not being rescued and your family already knows that you're quote unquote dead. Yes. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. So anyway, so she basically told him that you have to tell me that your priorities have changed and what's important in your life needs to be your family and the people around you and keep in mind that he had two kids so he just left to go climb everest for a month and a half
1: how old were his kids at that point do you know
0: um it, it didn't specify no um so his right arm had his right arm <laughs> his right arm had thawed and withered and Weather said that it looked like it had been incinerated. And he had the frostbite in his left hand too, in his left foot, all over his face, and nothing could be done for his nose. The frostbite had extended through all the soft tissue and the cartilage down to the bone. So I think this is very interesting because the plastic surgeon that he saw took an impression of his original nose. And at this time he had to clean out his exposed nasal passages to keep them wet and functioning Mm -hmm. Um, and the surgeons could grow him a new nose. Wow! Yeah. So they did it upside down on his forehead by taking cartilage from his ears and skin and then relocating it where the original had been amputated. His right arm was amputated just below the elbow. Um, his left side was a little bit better, um, but basically this article said it looks like he has a fleshy mitt and, and a crude, a terrible, yeah.
1: terrible description.
0: Well, I mean, it's accurate though. You can see the pictures once again. Um, so he lived through a year of pain as the severed nerves and his arm settled down. Uh, but he said it was like constantly being hit on the funny bone. Pretty amazing, but four months after all of this, he was back to work.
1: Wow. Well, I guess in some ways it was good that he was a pathologist because, mm-hmm. you know, you're not doing physical ex- exams on patients. Mm-hmm. Oh, but for his, sure. So his vision, we didn't talk about that. His vision must have uh, been okay. Recovered. And, I mean,
0: yeah, none of these sources touched base on that, but now that you're asking, I mean, I think that's a good question.
1: I mean, I'm assuming because I don't know how you would be a pathologist if you can look You couldn't see. Yeah.
0: So I don't know. I think once again it had to do with the lighting and then the fact that he had lacerated his corneas with ice.
1: Yeah, so, I guess you can come back from that.
0: Yeah. Well, the more you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, so um enlighten me about this. Is he still climbing? Did he continue to climb? No.
0: No. no. So, okay. What he said after this near-death experience, he said that sense of having to prove himself had just gone away. He said, I don't think about things in that way anymore, and it's just been a huge relief. I think that happens to most people. It just happened a lot later for him. And then he had said, if you can't learn something from dying, you are a slow learner. (laughs)
1: that's really well said yeah
0: i think so um and he would know uh and he you know he was like constantly setting goals is living for the future instead of today and he in conclusion had said try not to define yourself by achievements alone well that's all for now that's all for now thanks for listening goodbye survivors
1: goodbye survivors